Nev, you are the perfect uh, name of the father for this conversation. Your job is just to come in and set the, you know, Mar- Marcus will talk. And then your job is to come in and sort of ask the pointed question. And then, you know, that will set the parameters for the discourse. I'm just, I'm just being the voice of the dumb audience member. <laughs> no, well, the father and the audience are really the same if you think of the child and the mother as being sort of intimately related. So, okay. Yeah. Good we all point. have that to look, I don't know if either of you have children, but at least I yeah. know I have that to look forward to that I get to be the audience when it comes to the well, You know, I never thought that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, one of my professors, uh, love, he has a four year old daughter, and he just loves to talk about how having a child validates looking and like, what else is for him? Like, he just loves to talk about it. He's just like, it's all there, Chase. It's all there. <laughs> to understand you know what what that means to the human psyche to turn lead into gold is like an actual serious serious informative question what is serious and informative uh it's basically all that you missed is that um we now all unironically believe in alchemy that's great um you didn't miss a whole lot <laughs> i'm sure you were already there so i you know i i believe in a lot of strange things like psychoanalysis but i'm not trying with alchemy yet <laughs> so Welcome back, everyone. And it's episode 28 now. And yeah, so we uh, we have Chase back here on with us. I'm Mark. Hello, hello. I'm Zeb. And uh, hello, we're going to go back into um, some uh, discussion about psychotherapy, um, comparing sort of Freud and Lacan uh, against Jung. And what we want to focus on um, this week is particularly uh, their approach to religion and how they're, um, how maybe, you know, religion informed their theories um how they experienced religion um you know in some cases how they uh rebelled against against religion i think you know particularly in freud's case so chase um you know we we kind of mentioned that uh, lots of people you know basically see young being more outwardly friendly towards religion is a is a red flag to many people i think that you you listed yourself as among those is that you know, Young's sort of false friendliness in approach to religion um, is a warning to you. So tell, tell us about what you see as informative in Freud and Lacan when it comes to religion. Well, I, I'm going to start by talking about my, my, my red flag, if I can, which is just to say, I think when we're addressing what manner of, uh, or how these people relate to religion, I think we need to ask ourselves, what sort of relationship is it? Um, and in Jung's case, maybe it's just because I've, I don't know, been on Tinder too long or Twitter too long or whatever the problem might be. But, you know, MBTI types, kind of vaguer notions of spirituality tend to be a little alarming for me. And I think there are good social reasons why that exists, but it's alarming. And I think Jung, in an attempt to bring religion back to society in a way that was fading out in the early 20th century, may run the risk of watering it down too much. At least that would be my own personal registered concern. Whereas for Lacan, and Freud, we have, I would venture to say, 
unambiguously positive and unambiguously negative relationships to religion. Um, so for Freud, he's a scientist. He's a man of the late 19th century. He is a secular Jew um, in majority Catholic Austria-Hungary for the most part. He dies in Britain, but still. And the fact is that for Freud, religion is, is, a, is effectively a question of projection or a question of desire. It's a desire for um, basically someone to set the world straight, mm-hmm. um, set things straight, give you a kind of strong father figure, someone to discipline you, something to give you love, blah, 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 blah. Um, so, you know, he writes Moses and Monotheism, which is about basically this question. Why is it that we get a monotheistic God in the Old Testament? And well, it has a lot to do with the fact that the Jews actually killed Moses and are really guilty about it. And they're so guilty that they needed to invent God. Um, and I'm I'm simplifying, but that is sort of the, the hot take version of it. So it's it's reductive by our by our uh, definition. And I, I'll come back to that. But Lacan, by by a different token, um, so he's a little bit further on. He's not a student of Freud's because he he dies in eighty one. So he's actually he dies much later than most of these other figures do. Um, Lacan is raised in a very Catholic family. His father is fairly irreligious, but his mother is fairly religious. His brother actually goes on to become a monk, a Benedictine monk, at a revival monastery in France that is, to this day, as far as I could tell from the interview I read, kind of conservative. It sounds like they do Gregorian chant over there. Um, And so he has a kind of complicated relationship. From what we understand, when he entered medical school, and this is the bizarre thing, right? Lacan has an MD, so let that sink in. Lacan is a medical doctor. Um, so Lacan has an MD, and when he enters medical school, he stops going to Mass. But a series of letters to his brother seem to suggest that he considers himself a Christian. There's actually one point in his life, in a late lecture, or late seminar, I forget which, where he basically, he actually says there is one true religion, it is Christianity, there is one true church, nice. it is of Rome. So he clearly has a somewhat more positive relationship to religion than than mm. Freud does. Um, and I mean, you could argue for a lot of different reasons behind that. Could it be because, um, you know, he's not a late 19th century scientist in Vienna? Could it be because he's raised in a more overtly religious family than Freud was? Freud, to my knowledge, was raised in a fairly secular family to begin with. I mean, I think personally it has a lot more to do with who he was reading. So he went to uh, everyone's favorite religious orders high school. He went to the Je- Jesuit high school. Um, and it was quite popular with upper middle class Catholics in Paris at the time. And he read a lot of Thomas and he read a lot of Augustine. And he at one point says, my entire theory of language came out of De Magistro. He says, my entire theory of language is in Augustine. So just go there, read it, read how he speaks to his son, Adiodatus, and you will understand how I understand language. Um, and I think his notion of lack is very related to original sin. Now, why is it that his public discourse addressed religion somewhat differently? Well, I think Lacan was a bit of a narcissist, and I think he adopted discourses that would give him power over other people, and if religion didn't do that for him with regard to his own students, then he wasn't going to take it up. Um, there's actually a great, there's a great YouTube video everyone should look up where, um, uh, famously in 1968, there are big protests in, um, in Paris. And Lacan, a protester comes and disrupts Lacan's class. And Lacan is sitting there smoking a cigar. And he says, you know, we want the protesters, we want X, we want Y. And Lacan says, no, 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 what you want is a master. Um, and tells the guy to sit down. And the guy kind of gets shouted down by Lacan's 
Legion students. Um, until Lacan does effectively give him a master. Uh, and so that, it's very clear that Lacan had certain tendencies. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it is unclear how it related to religion, but for me personally, I think his narcissistic tendencies might play into like what is socially or not socially useful. Uh, much like Freud, he sort of anathematized people he didn't like, um, much like Freud did with Jung and Adler. Um, Lacan would do with Anna Freud, Freud's daughter. They hated each other. Um, he would also do that with the IPA, which is the International Psychoanalytic Association, which he was kicked out of for being insufficiently Freudian. And so he was very upset about that. If I remember, Young was also kicked out of it while president. No, he left because he was president. Oh, he left. Okay. Well, he didn't leave because he was president. He left. Um, so he and Freud were like super, super tight. Um, but then Jung was like, hey, maybe everything is not sex. And Freud was like, you're wrong. And before you come, <laughs> they had to part ways. Uh, and actually, I mean, I, I don't know if this is the time to bring up this question before we get into religion as such. But I would be interested in discussing the question of um, sexualization or the metaphors of sexualization. Because I think it's a good bridge into Lacan. Um, and into perhaps the line between religion and irreligion, because I think when you start throwing words like phallus, castration, uh, Lacan, it tends to alienate people, especially religious people. Um, so I would be down to talk about that if you're. You know. No, I think I think that would be good, and especially in, in the spirit of the episode um, of you know recognizing um, things in ourselves that maybe we don't necessarily want want to recognize and, you know, downplaying, um, down, you know, d- downplaying, you know, desires or interests or areas of, you know, of these texts because we are not comfortable with it. I mean, that, that in many ways, you know, overcoming that is the entire purpose of, of a lot of these, a lot of these exercises. So I think that's, you know, um, and you, you're right, especially in Freud and Lacan, um, it is phallocentric, we will say, um, <laughs> You know, very, for uh, very much keyed in on that, yeah. To um, you know, to to Freud, like we mentioned last week, um, you know, I think mo- most of his perceptions of neuroses were um the result of um, you know, infantile sexual experiences, and and for this, you know, he means something you know very particular, you know, that not sexual experiences, you know, necessarily another person, but things like um, like the example I gave last week of you know you know, an infant and don't know any better. So you're just scratching yourself where you have an itch and your parents are like, don't touch yourself there. People can see. Mm-hmm. Well, can I, uh, I, I think I, I would say, let's think about Freud's notions of sexuality as referring to pleasure, more generally speaking. So Freud will divide the, the stage of psychosexual development into the, the oral stage, the anal stage, latency period, um, and those actually just refer to where it is that the infant derives pleasure. So in the oral stage, it has to do with the breast. It has to do with like breastfeeding, basically. Where is it that the infant derives sustenance from the mother's breast or from a bottle nipple, if we're talking about a bottle formula? The, the, the second stage has to do with the baby's being potty trained, effectively. The baby's being socialized into how to successfully exist in the world. And that has a lot to do with what the parents say is acceptable versus unacceptable when it comes to using the bathroom. And so that orifice, if I can be very circuitous about this, or circumloquacious about it, um, you know, that's what it's about. And then there's a latency period, and then puberty has to do with discovering pleasure as a sexual phenomenon. So 
Well, it is true that we think about it as being sexual. In reality, Freud is just asking the question of, well, does pleasure help to determine our experience? Does pleasure help to determine who we are as people? Um, and I think, you know, um, we Catholics have a lot of obsession with pleasure um, and how to how to get it out of good things and knock it out of bad things. Um, and so I think there's a way in which that discourse is less foreign to us than we want to recognize. I think it's just within an American context, especially with the kind of Protestant heritage that we have, or perhaps more accurately, the puritanical heritage that we have, um, we're, we're afraid of certain discourses about sexuality, and it becomes easier to be afraid of, you know, thinking in terms of desire. But uh, Augustine certainly wasn't afraid to think in terms of desire. Right. Well, would, would you say that within um, sort of a, a Freudian framework, there is still, um, there, there's plenty of room for a sort of normative approach to sexuality and sexual desire i mean certainly the I, think, I think that that might be the fear for a lot of religious people especially a lot of catholics that you know this very you know what they might be used to when they think of like materialist approaches to sexuality um is that you know have fun who cares you know there's no real normative substance to it yeah no i think um it is it is probably true that at least for Lacan, there was a fair, there was a slightly more um, liberal attitude towards sexuality. Freud, I would say less so. I mean, as far as I understand him, and you you even kind of uh, made this point when you talk about Jung, is that, you know, he wanted to make people extroverts, basically, from what you were saying. And I think his attitudes towards socialization were somewhat similar. Uh, he was not really a libertine by any stretch of the imagination. Um. I mean, yeah, he used cocaine, but that's because back in the day they thought that was a medicinal substance, um, not because he was sort of, you know, desirous of a high or something like that. Uh, for Lacan, it is a bit more complicated. He actually married George Bataille's wife after they were divorced. I don't know if you guys know who George Bataille is, but he's uh, he's sort of the libertine par excellence, as maybe, and was in seminary at one point. So wrap your head around that one. Um, and it's clear Lacan's ethics of psychoanalysis cites uh, the Marquis de Sade quite a bit. But, you know, who the biggest citation is in the ethics of psychoanalysis? Aristotle. Um, so it is more complicated than it sounds. Um, I think it's that psychoanalysts, perhaps alongside uh, Jung, became less interested in policing norms and more interested in describing the way that norms were formed. Mm hmm and I think that that's a sort of an important distinction to, to make. There's a sense in which one could very easily apply a Lacanian framework to any sort of uh, set of sexual pathologizations that you were interested in applying it to. But it's equally possible to simply think of it as a descriptive framework for understanding how it is that we develop desire and how we develop notions of pleasure, how we develop notions of uh, how we develop neuroses, all of those things. Um, and so I think it's important to try to make that separation, even if it's not initially the case. Um, and I'll say one last thing is that I think people have a tendency to lump in figures like Derrida, Foucault, uh, Lacan. And when you do that, it, it, it can run into the problem of oversimplifying differences. Um, you know, it's Foucault who worked on Discipline and Punish and uh, other texts we might associate with certain other forms of uh, sexual liberation, um, perhaps falsely. But the point is that, that Lacan doesn't write about that explicitly. It's, it's just not there. We haven't done or mentioned yet any kind of overview of Lacan, but how is Lacan different from Freud? Where did he go based on that Freudian uh, origin? 
Yeah, that's thank you. That's uh, I think what I was going to try to sneak in. So thank you for for you know for making me formalize. It's an important part of the uh, analytic process. Um, so Lacan was convinced throughout his entire life that he was simply explicating Freud. Um, the school he founded was called uh, I, I can't I, I don't know if I can come with a, an English translation right away, but basically it's the school of Freudian analysis, the school of Freudian studies. He thinks he's just doing Freud. He's quite explicit when he dies. He refounds the second school and says, it's up to you to be Lacanians. For myself, I am a Freudian. Um, so he very much thinks he's explicating Freud. So what Lacan does is he goes to certain linguists like Saussure um, and Freud and says, what Freud hasn't explored is the linguistic dimension of psychoanalysis. He hasn't come to understand how it is that language shapes the ways that we act in the world uh, very, very, very uh, intimately. And that's why he turns to Augustine as well, because Augustine is very interested in language. He's very interested in how we talk about things. You see that in the De Doctrina, you see that in De Magistro. So Lacan's major insight is kind of to do away with the tripartite framework of ego, id, and superego that we think of, and to emphasize the other, and to emphasize how it is that we as individuals are always intersubjective. That is to say, social. So in a way, you can see him headed in the same direction as Jung. How do we take this Freudian concept that seems very individual and make it something that includes other people? Um, Lacan's way of doing that is thinking about the family. So this is where perhaps Catholics can perk their ears up. Um, he thinks that Freud's talk about the mother, the Oedipus complex, castration, all of that, is actually metaphorical. Here's where it's perhaps a little bit um, more amenable to the ways we would want to think about things. No one has to actually get castrated. No one has to actually want to sleep with their mother. We just need to think about them as metaphorical terms. Um, so for Lacan, we come into the world and we don't have any conception of ourselves at all. We're just, we're, we're basically pre-conscious, right? We're, we're babies. There is a point at which we begin to recognize ourselves as holistic, as whole, as, as one thing. That's what's called the mirror stage. Effectively, all that means is you're old enough to look in a mirror and say, oh, that's me. I'm not just a bunch of parts, but I am one thing. Um, which also leads you to realize you're different from your mother. Let's say you're breastfeeding, right? It means that you're suckling at the breast. You're, uh, you don't recognize that you and your mother are different, right? The fetus is connected to the mother. Even after birth, the fetus remains connected to the mother for food, for comfort, for, for sustenance, for nurture. Um, so Lacan thinks the major trauma in our lives is in a way realizing that we are not our mothers, right? That, that there is actually a point at which we have to conceive of ourselves as being independent. And where he goes from there is he says, well, there is a, a father figure. There is someone else that, you, that the mother desires. It doesn't have to be the father. And this is his innovation from Freud. It's just something the mother wants that isn't us. Because when we're young, we think all the mother wants is us. We think all the mother wants is to care for us, to love us, to feed us. But there's an age at which we realize, no, the mother has a job. The mother has uh, love interests. The mother has other children. All of these things. And that, for Lacan, is castration. What the, basically, what that means is we recognize that I, it's impossible to talk about this and not sound sort of insane, but we realize that we don't have the phallus. So what that means is that if you take the Freudian framework, the mother desires the father, sexually speaking, right? That's what Freud means. Um, for Lacan, he takes that terminology, the phallus, and it can mean something totally unsexual. It could just mean that your mother has a job. That's what the phallus is. It's the thing the mother desires. 
And I can already see how this language might make people uncomfortable, but the point is that it doesn't mean something sexual. Um, so you could say that his development is to give a kind of metaphoricity to the rigidly sexual concepts that someone like Freud develops, or the rigidly pleasure-based concepts that someone like Freud develops. Um, the second major thing I would add is that he's more interested in desire as such, and this is also very Augustinian. Um, he wants to ask, if Freud is interested in pleasure and what gives us pleasure, I'm going to ask, why do we desire the things we do? Um, and Lacan has a very famous quote. He says, the unconscious is the language of the other. Um, which is much simpler than it sounds. All it means is that when I'm a kid, I have too much energy and I'm running around and my parents say, hmm, maybe we should make him play football. That'll get rid of that energy. What my parents are doing is actually implanting a desire in me. They're teaching me something. They're teaching me that football is a way to expend energy, is a way to come to enjoy the expenditure of my excess uh, yeah, energy, right? So what he means by that is effectively that we're all connected. That from the very beginning, my parents are implanting in me what I should want, how I should want. And so for him, the analytic process is going to have a lot to do with determining, owning the fact that I want these things because others want them. And that will allow me to better understand why it is I want the things I want, and therefore perhaps to want other things. Um, and for me, that's very Augustinian. If you think about the pear tree episode in the Confessions or something like that, it's a it's a deeply related way of understanding desire as something that doesn't immediately make sense. But when you think about it as something imparted by groups or by others, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and so you can see I've been hinting at the idea that even if not overtly Catholic, Lacan has a clear interest in, you could say, updating um, certain Catholic concepts or ideas. You know, for one thing, I think for the, the record, as far as something like the, um, you know, the explicitly sort of sexual or erotic language or metaphors that are, used especially you know Lacan's approach um where he uses these two you know he, he uses this Freudian framework to you know, ex express you know much wider realities beyond um beyond just sex you know like looking at things like you know the Song of Songs which mm -hmm. is you know a book that doesn't get used a lot um in scripture readings you know there's there it's hard to grasp what the theology of it is but um you know it, it's basically this metaphor for a love of and desire for god um expressed through terms of young lovers um yeah, yeah. and it's you know very explicit and clear um <laughs> in in what it's doing um and, you know, at least you know in the the erotic language of it which again you think you know taking in sort of the lacanian sense you're know, recognizing that these are all you know that we could interpret all of these things as expressions of you know wider you know, sort of what wider frameworks or realities about ourselves. You know, there's, you know, there, there's well-ordered and good desire. There's, you know, unhealthy and, and disordered desire. And, you know, I think you could even say that the, you know, one of the goals of um, both psychotherapy and religion is how, is, you know, how, is, you know, showing people how to distinguish between their, their healthy desires and their their unhealthy desire. You know, the the desire to know God is not you know a disorder by by any sense of the imagination. Um, but we we can see it expressed in the Song of Songs in terms for you know desiring a lover that that all consuming sort of fire and passion. The other thing that it put in my mind was um, in uh, in the second sex when Simone de Beauvoir wrote that. There's a chapter I'm trying to remember. I tried to find it just tonight, um, just because when it came to my head, 
But when she talks about um, female saints and mystics, and she's showing how um, historically, because she uh, de Beauvoir actually grew up extremely Catholic, and sometime in her late teens, early adult years, um, she she became an atheist. But um, her writing on on religious people, I think, is actually very interesting and insightful. And so she uses, for example, um, the Bernini statue, the the ecstasy of Saint Teresa, um, and you know it's been commented on by basically anyone who's ever seen that statue or or a photo of it is that the the imagery of it is extremely erotic, um, to to say the least, um, and you know so then again you know in the sort of the psychotherapeutic sense the the question for us as you know. Catholics, for example, is how can we, um, you know, how can we take seriously these expressions of desire without, uh, you know, without either becoming phenomenally uncomfortable or just being reduced to snickering and snarky comments like we're, like we're in fifth grade. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I guess my question would be, if you take Augustine seriously, I mean, if you really read Confessions or um, the De Doctrina. And you see the way that Augustine talks about how we comport ourselves in the world. Um, or you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase this. Um, I think there are different sorts of Catholics who look for different things. But I think one of the big problems that Fran Pope Francis has tried to address is what about those Catholics who can understand the doctrinal or dogmatic content of the faith, but struggle in their everyday lives to live the faith the way that they would, that they know they should, Right. And what does it mean to desire to live the faith, but fail to live the faith? And when, when I, I think, you know, someone like Paul, someone like Augustine, these are, these are saints who address these questions that are, I think, harder to address at the, say, academic or scholastic level, um, which for anyone who follows me on Twitter probably knows that I'm sort of subtweeting Aquinas there, but that's fine. Um, I, I think that when you look at someone like Lacan, you see a desire to take seriously a problem like that, a desire to say, why is it that when I think I want something, I actually frustrate it? Why is it that when I, um, you know, I think we all have known this person in our lives, the person who um, goes to church on, you know, Saturday night and then goes out and parties and is drunk until Sunday morning uh, and then feels bad about it on Sunday morning. Or say the person who um, thinks, okay, I want to find someone I can marry and love and be monogamous with, but then inevitably never finds the person who's right for them and says, well, they have this problem and they have this problem. They have, you know, X and Y and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Lacan wants to ask, why is it that desire seems like it frustrates itself? Why does it seem like we are bundles of competing desires? And I think from a kind of pastoral perspective, that is an immensely important question for contemporary Catholics. Why is it that we seem to frustrate ourselves? Even when we think we understand everything dogmatically or doctrinally that we can about the faith, even if we're as well-read as we possibly could be, why is it that at the personal level we still struggle? And that's what therapy is about, that's what analysis is about, and that's what confession is about. Um, and I think that's why it's important to take figures like this seriously, both religiously and um, practically. It sounds like the way you talking talked about how Freud used sexual desire as kind of like a metaphor for all desire and Lacan maybe even more so using 
Freudian's sexual terminology to refer to a much bigger kind of metaphorical usage, maybe is an actual reversal of the stereotype of these guys, which people will say they think that everything really boils down to sex. And it sounds like what they really were saying was that um, sex is a metaphor for everything else. Well, I, I think that's partly true. I think the way that I think about it is this. When we look for a metaphor for desire, and you can see this through human history. This is true of Catholics as much as it is of non-Catholics, I hate to, to tell people. You look for a metonym that will represent passion and desire successfully. Mm-hmm. And it's very common for sex to be that metaphor. Um, if you think about, um, I, I mentioned this earlier to you, if you think about the, the, the equation of usury and sodomy in the Middle Ages, um, if you think about, I remember I was listening to uh, a podcast called Generation Y. It's about true crime. I don't know if you guys listen to that. But they were in. They were talking about this serial killer, and they interviewed him, and they ta- or they didn't, but they reported an interview, and he was talking about arson. He was talking about burning down a house. And how did he describe the pleasure he derived from that? He said it was better than sex. Mm-hmm. And that looked me to ask, well, why, why is sex the comparison there? You know, why, why is that what he's talking about? And it's because I think for a lot of people, that sort of experience is how they think about the heights of passion, the heights of desire. And so using those metaphors, I think, have more to do with what's normative or the easiest ways to conceive of wholeness and fulfillment than they do with an obsession with sex as such. Yeah. And so I would think that <coughs> using this kind of framework offers uh, the opportunity to sublimate desires that maybe in an unhealthy way we identify their uh, their goal in actual sexual experience or other forms of uh, consumption or crime or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And realizing that the desire itself or desire just kind of as a primordial undifferentiated thing can have, can terminate in a lot of different ends and in the same way that we interpret the Song of Songs, which on its surface is an erotic love poem as really being about communion with God and union with God, that mm-hmm. um, looking at our own psychological experience under this framework can offer that, that same opportunity to try to understand our desires and our compulsions and then find ways to sublimate them in ways that we consciously choose and identify to be more healthy or better for us. I totally agree. And actually, I mean, I think a good, to, to bring it back to the Song of Songs, which I'm sorry I sort of skipped over earlier, but um, if you think about, and this is what Lacan thinks, if you think about all language as a form of allegorization, as a way of representing relationships, it makes a lot of sense to think about every time we talk about desire as being like the Song of Songs. Um, to think about whenever we symbolize ourselves in language, whenever we talk about ourselves, we're ultimately attempting a representation, which is exactly what the author of the Song of Songs is trying to do. Attempt a representation of the relationship between Christ, uh, between us and, you know, between the church and Christ, or between, on some readings, Mary and us, or whatever the case might be, because uh, there are different medieval readings of the Song of Songs. But we're always representing ourselves to ourselves. Um, and we're always representing things to ourselves. And I think Lacan's emphasis on language and desire allows us to think about things like the Song of Songs 
or even um, you know other narratives within the Bible, especially poetic narratives, as being a little bit like how we represent our desires to ourselves, and then we can create parallels and create um, yeah ways of thinking of them as being analogous. By contrast, um, you know Young's approach to religion, um, you know he had you know what what could be considered you know, maybe more new agey approaches than sort of Lacan's hard Augustinian Augustinian take. Um, but Young actually wrote extensively on the more or less the psychic phenomenon of confession um, mm-hmm. and comparing it to psychotherapeutic practices. So one of the things that he would always do with his, um, if you ever had a Catholic patient who came to him, the first thing you'd always recommend for them is to go to confession. Mm. He did actually extensive studies uh, with uh, his Protestant and Jewish patients versus his Catholic patients um, and how basically uh, his his theory at least was that um, psychotherapy was more or less taking taking the place of confession for, for example, Protestants who didn't have this this sort of like established established ritual um, where in many ways it is encountering the your shadow because what are you asked to do before before confession you know you, you have that reflection on on your sins and there you know once you perform that examination of your conscience um, you then go and you express this um, to a priest who you know granted power by God is able to actually pronounce absolution and. For young kind of some of the added power for this was that in absolution um, you are forgiven on a truly metaphysical level. So like if I you know have a bad day, I lose my temper, I snap at Zeb online, say something really mean, and I'll be like, look, I'm really sorry, and he can forgive me. Um, but like I'll still you know I might as well still feel guilty yeah. about that. But what the power of confession is is that confession has the power to actually. Um, at least in Young's mind, you have to even remove the guilt where, you know, the the fracture between you and God um, is made whole in the sacrament of confession. And Young sees this as essentially um, the same process of psychotherapy of making your psyche whole um, so that these fractures in your psyche between you and your unwanted shadow is that, you know, being able to unify and bring that back together. This is very much in tandem with the process of of how confession functions for people on a sort of psychological level rather than specifically specifically metaphysical. And he sees that uh, the rise of neuroses, his view of neuroses as, you know, the result of this, up, you know, upwelling of, um, you know, the archetypes from the collective unconscious and not really knowing how to deal with those, how to face those. Um, he sees all that as related to the decline of especially sort of like liturgical religion where um, the liturgy provides these symbols and these sacraments, these outward expressions. And um, by experiencing these, these symbols, these practices, um, Jung basically sees that as um, a healthy experience with the, the collective unconscious part of, of our psyche. So not just in the, the metaphysical sense um, of the community with God, but also... Um, you know, the reality of like the history of human psychology, how that all dwells in all of us, that things like the liturgy, things like the sacraments are ways for us to encounter that and to experience that. Um, and without that, th- those same desires, those same needs still lie in us. 
um, they just they will express themselves in different ways. And he sees basically psychotherapy as a replacement for as a replacement for confession. You know, he will see you know other behaviors and all that these neuroses as replacements for healthy and well ordered ways to experience that those archetypes in that collective unconscious. I see. I'm interested in that um, because I've sort of hinted at this last week or um, you know last 45 minutes ago, but. I am interested in the idea of the kind of replaceability of the sacraments if the notion of confession is made sort of practical or utilitarian, if that makes sense. Um, so it's it's clear to me that um, the neuroses that one deals with within a Lacanian framework are certainly something that could be worked on in confession as well without question, but are sort of grander and more complex in a way that like you're just not going to address with your priest in 20 minutes. Like the, the question of guilt versus, um, or shame, those questions are not, excuse me, primary to Lacanian analysis. Um, and I guess I worry a little bit about it, about the function, and we've, we've spoken about this, about the function of religion as a kind of practical thing, as opposed to as something more metaphysically salient because mm-hmm. um, i can imagine lacanianism and catholicism existing side by side whereas it sounds like for Jung, it's kind of religion and analysis are, are related to the same yeah i wanted to ask you about this and if this is the last question you have time for that's fine but um about the tendency of christians to want to make our religious practice and belief the answer to psychological problems you know, and yeah. the idea like the, the idea that you ought to be able to pray the de- depression away or the mania mm-hmm. away or whatever. And um, uh, I, yeah, go ahead. The inability, if whether, what do you think as the role of analysis or therapy alongside religious practice and how those are different? I know personally, I did a year of therapy that was very helpful and found it to be a completely different thing and realized, in my opinion, what a complete um, misconception it is to cross identify the spiritual with the psychological and I find spiritual um, benefit, of course, you know, and nurturing and everything in the church and in the sacraments, but psychological, not so much. Yeah, no, I mean, I think th- there are two related questions buried in there. Um, one I think has to do with how we as contemporary people conceive of things like depression. Um, and I'm going to answer that first, just because I think it'll help me to segue into the second, which is to say that I think there's a discourse around medicalization that exists today um, that cuts in a lot of different ways. A lot of people are taking antidepressants, and then there's a whole discourse around, well, you know, people shouldn't be embarrassed to do that. And I totally agree. But I think what psychoanalysis offers us is a way of understanding the psyche that attempts to cure it as opposed to act as a kind of stopgap. Um, because ultimately when you're dealing with biological medications, what you're dealing with is a kind of control on chemicals. Uh, they can't be long-term solutions because all it can address is I can take this today and it can lead me to act a certain way for a certain amount of time. I mean, if anyone here has ever taken like Adderall, you know, you're going to concentrate for 12 hours or whatever it's going to be, and then you will return to your normal self. The goal of something like psychoanalysis is to attempt um, some kind of cure, is attempt is to attempt a kind of correctly ordered relationship to language, 
Um, so I think it's important at least to say that when people talk about praying the depression away, I think they're engaging in an understanding of depression that cries out for something that can actually cure it or cope with it, mm-hmm. that a medicalization discourse simply blocks off. Um, and they're forgetting that therapy, the talking cure, psychoanalysis, that that is actually a way to deal or think about curing it, as opposed to just stopgapping it. Um, that isn't just, oh, God, help me, but is in fact self, self-reflection and is, well, is really assistance from someone else in understanding yourself. And I think there's something deeply Christian about that. There's something deeply Christian about going to another person and engaging in a, in a, in, in a discussion with them effectively that results in better understanding. Um, but the second question, which is related to that, was about how it is that we can think about these two things as being different discourses, the religious discourse. And um, so you can tell I've been in graduate school too long because I call everything a discourse. <laughs> um, but uh, that there's both a religious aspect and a, and a psychological aspect. And I guess I would I would frame it this way. I think my happiness or unhappiness has a lot to do with praxis, practices. Those are both religious practices and non-religious practices. So if I say my prayers, those are points in the corner of Chase is probably going to feel pretty good today. But the same could be said for like, do I stick to the to-do schedule I wrote on the piece of paper in my room, right? So there's a way in which psychic happiness is often linked to things like structuring, is often linked to things like relationships. Some of those things are spiritual and religious, like overtly, like making sure I go to church, making sure I go to confession, all of that stuff. But that's not the sum total of my relationships, and it's not the sum total of um, the practices that keep me mentally healthy, right? Um, Let's say I decide to play Skyrim instead of doing my work on any given day. That's probably going to end with me being more depressed than when I started, Um, because I didn't get the things that I mentally needed to get done in order to feel fulfilled, in order to give myself the free time that I wanted, right? That's not a religious question. Like, I mean, it's just not like whether I get the thing done I'm supposed to before I play Skyrim has nothing to do with my relationship to God. Um, It might in the sense that cultivating a prayerful relationship with God makes me happier in in a certain sense, makes me feel fulfilled. But it's not the sum total of those relationships. And I think it's important for Catholics to keep that in mind. Um, Unless you're a monk or something, and even then it's probably not truly the case if you're a monk or a nun. We have all sorts of relationships and interactions every day that are not religious, overtly speaking. I mean, uh, you were talking about going to work earlier, uh, Marcus. And it's like, when I go to my graduate school, I'm not talking about Jesus Christ 24 hours a day. I'm probably spending more time talking about Lacan. Maybe you should um, be, though. I should be. And um, I could, uh, you know, I could... <laughs> I will admit that... Uh, I think everyone in my program is maybe too familiar with the fact that I'm religious. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I probably have a to extent with how much I am willing to kind of wear it on my, on my chest, so to speak, or, you know, right out in the open. But it, it, it's just not about that. I mean, if I'm sitting having a drink with my advisor talking about my dissertation, um, my dissertation, because I'm a medievalist, does happen to deal with Jesus Christ in certain ways, but it doesn't have to. Um, and there are lots of ways to be a faithful Catholic and be a scientist or work in sales or whatever you happen to be doing. And therapy is about achieving a certain sense of consistency in those relationships, even if it's not about achieving happiness. Because for Lacan, there's no such thing as 
happiness in in the most overt sense, right? Like, and I'm I'm no, but I'm cool with that because You're I really think, selling it. <laughs> well, I'm cool with it because I think from an Augustinian perspective, from the perspective of the fall, we always have to be ready to fall again. But there are going to be moments of joy. There are going to be moments of love, and it's about trying to cultivate and be open to those things. And I think that's what Lacan wants to get us to do, even if he doesn't quite know it. And I think that's what Augustine wants us to do. And to some extent, I think that's what Pope Francis wants us to do, um, is to be open to those kind of loving interactions that we foreclose ourselves to. And I think that clinical therapy today has a tendency to overemphasize the medical aspects of this, which has lots of problems. It allows us to label people and say, oh, that person is depressed, or that person is this. You know, that person struggles with X disease, Y disease. What psychoanalysis allows us to do is not to see people in those categories, to see them as, oh, that's the depressive, or that's the person who needs to be on Prozac. It allows us to say, well, we're actually all pretty screwed up. We all have disordered relationships to language. We all have disordered relationships to our own desire. We all have different problems, but we all have problems. And I think a lot of the problems that surround medicalization discourse would just disappear if we took a psychoanalytic perspective on these things, because then everybody is screwed up. Everybody has issues. And it's a question of what those issues are, and you work those out with your analyst. Um, so I suppose in conclusion, if we as Catholics want to address psychological problems, go to psychoanalysis, screw everybody taking Prozac, not because Prozac's not good and important, because it actually leads us to label people in certain ways and distracts us by leading us to have conversations about, oh, should we stigmatize drug use? Should we stigmatize medical use, you know, the use of uh, antidepressants? Of course not. But we only stigmatize them because of the way that contemporary therapy leads us to talk about these problems. And if we thought about them in psychoanalytic terms, which is to say Augustinian terms, which is to say Catholic terms, we wouldn't have that problem. Hmm. Sorry, I, I got on my high horse. For a second, <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, it's, it's good. Good to end with a sermon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I would be interested, yeah. obviously, um, not tonight, but maybe not tonight, I would be interested to hear what, how someone like Lacan would understand like the role of like a holy fool um yeah. which is you know, something that's maybe a bit on decline um in our modern society very much that you know that normative sense of you know differences are at you know at the very least to be highly suspect um yeah. but as, as my final parting shot um in favor of young <laughs> i just want to say um young was able to explain otherkin which as far as i know Roy <laughs> and Lacan failed in entirely <laughs> i have to admit i'm still struggling to explain otherkin um you know that said if it's just about a disordered relationship to language then, <laughs> then <I'm> not <laughs> Oh, so there's the last group of our listeners we finally alienated. So that was, that was <laughs> well done. <laughs> uh, All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on for this. I've been wanting to do this episode for so long. I had, this is, I, I love this. So I find it so interesting. I, don't, I have no real background in it, um, but I find it really interesting and important. Well, no, thank you. I mean, it's actually sort of funny. I originally wanted to be a psychiatrist and then I read a bunch of literature. It was like, oh no, literature actually helps people with problems more than psychiatry and then i read lacan it was like oh my god like it actually turns out these are all the same thing and it's all this language <laughs> so uh you know it, it's actually my pleasure to talk about this and uh yeah maybe some other time we could talk about other kids at least via you know twitter yeah. dm or something absolutely <laughs> i i, I want to hear what your takes are what if there's a connection with the the threads between like uh freud lacan and wittgenstein somewhere in the middle 
I know, you know, he's different, you know, different country, but um, the answer is the yes. overlaps of, the overlaps of interest in language and Augustine. I would be shocked mm-hmm. if Lacan never had an opinion about him. Now, from what I know, he was actually quite positive in his reception of someone like Wittgenstein. Um, because there there is a movement in that period that I think a lot of Catholics have become distrustful of where there's a kind of reemphasis on language. Um, and I think part of my polemic that, you know, about from about five minutes ago was to argue that maybe there are reasons to take language in that sense seriously. And I, I think you you even see this in the capital D discourse of, of many Catholics today where there's a question of, you know, we have to call things by the right names. We have to do that. You know, language has to be correct. And I said to myself, well, read Augustine where he says there's no such thing as the word lining up with the thing it's trying to represent. And that's what Wittgenstein thinks. That's what Lacan thinks. Um, but there, in a way, I feel like I'm doing, you know, we're doing resource mall here or something like that. Uh, not to get myself killed by the Vatican one fans <laughs> in the room, but you know, if we got to go back to the fathers, we got to go back to the fathers and, uh, Lacan's all about the name of the father. So, so. well, thanks. Thanks, Chase. Thanks a lot. <laughs> this has been great. No, thank you. Are, are, are we, is this, are we, is this the end or is this the end with regard to the recording? I can't tell what we're doing right now, so, but maybe I'll leave you with um, a really good anecdote that I think proves that Zizek and Lacan are right and proves that, you know, they have something to do with Catholicism. Um, so if you ever watched a Zizek talk, the first thing he always says after they introduce him and they're like, oh, Slavoj Zizek has written X and Y book and Z book. He says, oh, you know, it feels so good to get up here and be castrated. Um, and, and what he's talking about there is precisely the, the Lacanian point that the way that the other talks about us is both who we are and not who we are. Our self-perception never quite lines up with how the other speaks about us, but the real guilt comes from knowing that the way they speak about us is how the others might be speaking about us. Mm. Um, and so that the way that we understand ourselves might be disordered. And I think there's a relationship to community there that has a lot to say with regard to Catholicism um, and a lot to say about my relationship to Twitter. And how I think about people think about my sad posting. So, <laughs> uh, with that, maybe that's maybe that's my way out. But please let me know when it's edited. I, I really do owe you both my, my most supreme thanks. Keep it on the Sabbath. Um, that's all I can ask for. Uh, you know, from a from a sort of religious perspective. But no, I really am very thankful. I um, I actually, you know, I haven't come all around to Jung, but I do like him literally about six hundred percent more than when I started this. So we're I gonna keep we're gonna to going in the DMs. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, very exciting. I'm going to get on the road so I can go see my friend yeah. and uh, let him know what's going on with that. And frankly, smoke. You know, it's it's about that time. My <laughs> cigarette. Uh, I think if you follow me on Twitter, you're aware of that problem too. Oral fixation. Um, <laughs> we, anyway, yeah. we, we we can talk about that another time. We we can pry in some of our personal neuroses and we can really make each other mad by picking at those. <laughs> maybe another time. I think so. mine hopefully are quite easy to pick out, but I can explain <laughs> them to you if you want. Um, and then you'll tell me, no, you're wrong about your own neuroses. That, that's when the analysis starts. Okay. Right. But, All right. Well, thank Take you. care for that. All right. Sure. Thanks again so much. Have God bless. DM me whenever.